3: I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a market market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to America. I hope you'll make friends just try to make us some money. My job is not just to entertain you, but to educate and teach you, so call me at 1-800-743-CBC or tweet me at Jim Kramer. At moments like these, It's easy to forget why we ever even liked technology stocks in the first place. Even if tech got a reprieve today, Dow gaining 347 points, the S&P climbing 1.50%, but the tech-heavy Nasdaq jumping 2.28%. One after another, I'm hearing people trash tech, making it clear that they want nothing to do with almost anything in this sector, not just the semiconductors, and that this entire move this week, which you know I've liked, is a selling opportunity. T. Sell, 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 I get sell. It. Most tech stocks have been absolute disasters. <laughs> hey, hey, the whole year, much worse than the already bad averages. Now, though, when we're finally getting some really serious downgrades, price target cuts and critical commentary, it's important not to get carried away with the negativity. What we need to remember is why we like tech to begin with. We do know that in a slowdown, less money will be allocated to technology. We know the valuations got too high last year, in part because of the excess liquidity in the system, but also in part because many of these companies were wildly over-earning during the pandemic. And it was really hard to tell that they were. But to throw in the towel now on stocks like NVIDIA, which I hear people doing, uh, which has fallen from $346 to $158, or AMD from $164 to $79, that seems awfully extreme. They weren't worth what they were selling for back at their highs, but do they really deserve to be worth as little as they are now? First, though, I, I need to back up and explain what went wrong, what fooled so many people, including yours, truly. Put simply, we confused the one time only purchases of tech by individuals at the height of the pandemic with some sort of new secular trend that could last forever. We didn't understand the work-from-home pivot, which was entirely one-off. We didn't understand the play-from-home wave either, so we extrapolated computer and gaming equipment sales and misjudged both the volume and velocity of what was really needed. Now, before I get too critical, nobody saw mass work from home coming, and nobody knew when it would end. What looked like an ephemeral trend then lasted long enough to seem like a universal trend, but now it's feeling like an uneven, sporadic trend. In that bizarre scenario, who knew if every house would need a new heavy duty PC, cell phone, game box and headgear or just 40 million homes, maybe 60 million homes? Who would need it? Would it be 330 million Americans or 33 million Americans? Hey, what would the Chinese do? Would they need it? How about the Europeans? No one knew. Then we had three waves of COVID, and everybody from Walmart to Target to Amazon went from thinking that this work-from-home thing can't last for too long to thinking, well, we're, we're going to work from home forever. So who knew how much hardware to buy or how many warehouses to rent or how much tech-heavy infrastructure was needed to meet the demand? The whole chain didn't, didn't know. Everybody, from top to bottom. It was an inherently unpredictable situation, and many companies flat out guessed wrong, including huge outfits like Amazon that usually have uncanny instincts buttressed by artificial intelligence insights. Into this vacuum, we saw the success of Roku, Zoom, DocuSign, Etsy, Shopify, and so many others that seemed like great secular growth stories that they turned out to be not merely cyclical, but actually one-off plays on the pandemic. Something like that has never happened before. That's why so many of us got it wrong. It was almost impossible to forecast. But in an uncertain scenario, companies will typically err on the side of having more product and making more product, not less. When you go that way, though, you run the risk of overproducing. And that's precisely what happened to tech. As one by one, companies recognized that the Internet, which had been put into hyperdrive, switched back to something resembling, say, simple drive. Suddenly, there was too much supply coming and not enough demand for everything tech. Then, out of nowhere, China locks down its economy to deal with COVID because they bet on the wrong vaccines. And then Russia invades Ukraine in a psychotic war of aggression. Both bad news for the industry. We're all familiar with tech. It impacts us every day, from the cell phone to PC e commerce. But analysts and companies alike came to believe that previously fickle consumers had then turned into serial gobblers of all things tech. FinTech, right? I mean, like the PayPals of the world, Uh, Logitech, which we like very much, but you had to have their gear. Uh, For some companies, the seemingly insatiable consumer exceeded the tepid enterprise market, which is usually much, much larger. So in other words, the consumer market looked like it was bigger than the enterprise market. So everyone built and built for them. And then out of nowhere, it almost all reversed. The consumer was full up. The enterprise needed to catch up. And China switched into a vaccine-based system rather than a lockdown-based system. Now there's a glut of unbelievable proportions for consumers and a true dearth of product for the enterprise. So all of tech plummeted because everyone, again, from, uh, from the companies to the portfolio managers to the traders were caught with their pants down. Everyone had too much of everything. Making things even worse, of course, the Fed had to take into account the headlong boom, not the crash, and it's tightened aggressively to stamp it out. In that environment, in retrospect, it seems pretty obvious that tech stocks would be wiped out, which is why I went so negative on most of the group last November. But what wasn't obvious, though, was that the analysts and commentators would only realize what was happening, what I just told you about, just now. Not back in November, but now, near the bottom of the cycle. Yeah, they finally become becoming negative, just when I believe that they should be going positive. And that's how the semiconductor stocks exploded this week after Micron came on Squawk on the Street Tuesday morning to talk about how the enterprise is getting stronger and the chip glut will soon be worked off. All people heard about was the consumer side was week. Hey, it didn't hurt. Samsung came out last night and said things aren't as bad as we thought, although instantly people said that the quarter was bad. It wasn't. And I wouldn't be surprised if this sparks a much more lasting rally in tech. Why do I think tech now has staying power? Because first, the Chinese consumer might be coming back. But second, more importantly, the enterprise isn't getting as weak as you normally expect in a Fed-mandated slowdown. And in many ways, tech is helping businesses manage the downturn as it always does. Tech's deflationary. You can lay off lots of people with new technology. You can figure out how to make things more cheaply, do more with less tech because of technology. You can make better products with more tech. All this is happening now. The smokescreen of the consumer's tail off obscured an underlying rise in corporate demand that's now playing out and playing out fast. As someone who's seen many a cycle, I know that you can't wait for the inventories to burn off or online advertising start coming back. You have to anticipate the turn when things look really bad like right now. That means most analysts who who only turn negative right here will be wrong. They're seven months too late. Remember what tech's role in society really is. To improve an enterprise or a consumer's life with something faster, less wasteful, more intelligent, and more helpful. The enterprise needs 5G wireless and high-performance computing more than ever to keep up with demand. It doesn't need more PCs or printers or low-end cell phones. It needs top-notch cybersecurity, not grafted on hardware. The bottom line... You need to recognize that tech could have more than just a temporary bounce, at least as you're looking at companies that provide new life to the enterprise, even as admittedly the consumer side still looks pretty ugly. Harriet in Florida, Harriet.
0: Hello there, Jim. Hey, Jim, I've held on to my shares of Dick's
3: Sporting Goods, which, of course, are underwater. But I was wondering, what are your thoughts on specialty retail and DKS in particular? Okay, I happen to like Dix more than I like the specialty retail group. And one of the reasons I like Dix is that I think that Lauren Hobart is fabulous. This stock sells at seven times earnings. I almost think like it's like sexism that sells at seven times earnings. I'm not kidding. There's no reason why that stock should be so low. And I invite Lauren Hobart to come on any day of the week because she's a fabulous manager. Right? You need to recognize that tech could have more than just a temporary balance, at least if you're looking at companies that provide new life to the enterprise. While the consumer side, I'm not saying it is good, it's still ugly. On Man Money, tonight, speaking of the the enterprise side, C3AI had a strong showing this week. So could the enterprise software stock be ready to continue its run? I'm going to talk to the CEO. Then is it time to get defensive if you want to with a stock like Coca-Cola? I'm taking a closer look at the stock. And Levi's reported second quarter results after the bell. I'm running through the numbers. Fresh off the release with the company's top brass, they look pretty good. So stay with Kramer. what's the deal with the stock of C3AI, the enterprise software company focused on artificial intelligence and machine learning? We know unprofitable software stocks are very much out of style on the Wall Street fashion show right now. But this thing has now plummeted roughly 89% from its highs near the end of 2020. Not long after it became public. I got a call uh, about C3 AI from Richard in Nevada last week, and all I can say is it's been a horrific performer, even though it's run by software veteran Tom Siebel, who sold his first company to Oracle for nearly $6 billion back in 2005. That's why I issued an open invitation for Siebel to come on the show and explain why he thinks the market's got the stock wrong. I'm always hoping to hear in the bookcase here because I suspect the market's gotten too negative. In fact, the darn thing's now up nearly 50% from its May lows, even as its most recent quarter was indeed widely panned. So let's check in with Tom Siebel, the founder, chairman, and CEO of C3AI to get a better read on the company. Mr. Siebel, welcome to Mad Money. Mr. Siebel, welcome to Mad Money. Jim Kramer, nice to see you. Tom, I miss you. It's been many, many years, and I'm so glad you're on the show. Why don't you give people a chance who don't know you, your history, and it led up to, and what C3 AI does.
5: Okay, this is my uh, fourth decade in the information technology industry. I was involved in starting Oracle and building that company, and ultimately one of the guys who ran it. Uh, in 1993 you'll remember we started Siebel systems sure which uh, was a very rapidly growing uh, cash positive profitable business uh, where we invented the crM market and we had about 80 percent of share in crM sales marketing customer service before we sold that uh, company to my friend Larry Allison in january of 2006
3: at a considerable and that- profit at a considerable profit for everybody who was in it
5: that was a good business. I think that was the most rapidly growing enterprise application software company in history. We right. went from uh, standing start to about two billion in revenue in six years, and then in uh, in uh, we started in January of two thousand nine. We started C three AI, and we've invested about a billion dollars. Okay, building a software platform and a set of forty two applications. That basically take this. So the enterprise application software market, as you recall, when we started this at companies like Oracle right. and SAP, PeopleSoft and Siebel, is about a half a trillion dollar market today. Uh, and in manufacturing and ERP, okay, and CRM and supply chain and what have you, and these systems enable companies to report on what their cash was, or what their inventory was, or what their customer churn was, or what their uh, what their device failure was or what their ESG footprint was. Okay. So now what we'll be doing at C3 AI is we built a platform uh, uh, that we call the C3 AI platform and about 42 enterprise applications uh, that make these, this, now we have trillions of dollars invested in these enterprise applications mm-hmm. and with applying the C3 AI platform to these SAP implementations um, Oracle implementations, Salesforce implementations, Siebel implementations, JD Edwards implementations, what what have you? We make them predictive. So by predictive, rather than tell us simply what our inventory uh, 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 values were okay. six months ago, it'll tell us what they need to be in each of the next 180 days to meet the demand function. Okay, so rather t- than I mean, telling no, um, us that, rather than telling what customers left, it'll right. tell us in advance. Which customers are going to leave us, so we can save them? Okay. Rather so than telling the, us which devices failed, it'll tell us which devices are going to fail, so we can prevent. that. Right, I love the predictive nature,
3: but I also have to try to be a little more predictive about your earnings. Now, you mentioned that that Siebel was cash flow positive. I mean, just made a, you made money very fast. Now, when I look at what's happened so far, a lot of the analysts seem to be disappointing about the growth outlook. Uh, about a, a, like a faster path to profitability, it's almost as if, first of all, that you've never done anything in your life. I mean, these guys look like that you're, that you're 24 and you just decided, you know what, I'm going to take a lot of money and put it in a furnace. I know you as a guy who, who, when I read Deutsche Bank, says fourth quarter, hide under your desk, reaffirm sell. That's someone who's saying, you know what, I think it's they're making a judgment that may be too early about your body of work. Uh, or that we grade you by the number of CFOs you've had. So we got to take head on the people who say that you're not on the right path and explain to them why they could be very wrong about C3 AI.
5: Well, if we look at enterprise AI, this is a $600 billion addressable market. We're the world's leading provider in the space. We're a quarter of a billion dollar software company. We're growing last year at I think a thirty eight percent compound annual growth rate, which is the which is the it's in the top deck aisle of growth. We have a billion dollars cash in the bank. Um, last quarter, roughly a billion nine hundred and you know some hundred million, uh, roughly a billion dollars cash in the bank. I think last quarter we consumed fifteen billion million dollars in cash. So fast math. Okay, we'll run out of cash at this rate in sixty-seven quarters. Now, the um, this is important to understand, Jim, and it's true. I mean, this is not my first rodeo. This right. is a structurally this is a structurally profitable business. By structurally profitable, I mean we have eighty percent gross margins. It's not that hard to run a cash positive, profitable business with eighty percent gross margins, and so. It, um, you know, we have a clear path to profitability. Goodness, we're spending, I think, 46% of revenue on marketing and branding. If we cut that down to, I'm sorry, 43%, right. if we cut that down to any reasonable right. number, I mean, we could throw this into cash positive profitable actually in 90 days. But
3: shouldn't you do that? I mean, in order to be able to, uh, look, I know you don't want to answer people who are, have never done what you've accomplished. But we have investors who are saying, look, I'm in this thing. I, I know Siebel is bankable. I want to see right now, this year, that he can't make a lot of money for me.
5: Not well. bad. I think what we need to look at is the addressable market opportunity. Okay. And for me to throw this into a cash positive business in 90 days, which I could do right. would, would be not in the best interest of the shareholders and not in the best interest of our customers. We have a clear path to profitability. Uh, okay. In the next, you know, let's say uh, six quarters okay. where we basically reduce our marketing expenses from 29% of revenue to 11. Nobody spends 29% right. of, of on revenue on marketing. Our R&D expenses to, make, to establish technology leadership have been 44% of revenue. Goodness, Jim, nobody spends 44% no, of revenue. No, I agree. I am that more down
3: of a devil's advocate out. on this one, Tom. You've made when I was a hedge fund manager, you made me so much money that to be dismissed the way the research is doing it is wrong. At the same time, I understand and you understand that the market is jumpy and jittery about companies that are not making money. And you and I know that that may be wrong at this time, but I also and the sentiment is not completely crazy.
5: No, Jim, and, and I don't want to, you you know, I have enormous respect for the markets and I have enormous respect for investors, but markets are pretty jittery right now. Right. And I think we're likely to have a bloodbath in the tech market in in the next two years. I mean, you and I have seen this movie before. Right. OK. Uh, and it's going to get ugly out there. And mo- many of these companies are not ongoing concerns. C3 is an ongoing concern. We have a billion dollars cash. But in well, the
3: bank. Uh, unfortunately, uh, I, I, I do have to leave it that because we've gone on a little bit long. But I'm with you. I got to see. But, you know, I answer, you have to. It's a, a tough line to straddle. But Tom Siebel is backable. You are a bankable person. And I've been banking with you for 25 years, and I'm not going to change. And I'm glad you're on the show. Tom Siebel, chairman and CEO of C3AI, thank you for coming on the show. Thanks, Jim. Thank you. Man, yeah, money's back here for break.
1: Coming up, Kramer's got a fresh take on a bubbly icon. Should you be sipping this stock on the rocks next?
2: You seek the key.
3: Best ideas are the most obvious ones. Earlier this week, we went over the best-performing stocks in the first half to see how many of them could keep winning in the second half. I was skeptical about some of them, but there were also some I liked very much, including Coca-Cola, the fifth-best-performing stock in the Dow, during the first six months of the year, not more than 6% for 2022. I told you I thought I had more room to run, but we had a lot of ground to cover on Tuesday, so I didn't get to do the story justice. And that's why tonight I'm circling back to Coca-Cola because I see it as a fabulous stock for the current moment. Of course, I've been recommending this one since the very beginning of the year. When the Fed aggressively raises interest rates, causing an economic slowdown or even recession, the Wall Street playbook says you need to hide in the defense of recession-proof stocks. Coca-Cola is practically a textbook example. The beverage business simply is not hostage to the broader economy. That makes it way more attractive by comparison when all sorts of economically sensitive companies start putting up bad numbers. That's a huge reason for Coke's relative outperformance this year. So far, it's been fighting with its hands tied behind its back. Why? Because we've also got rampant inflation, and those higher costs have been eating to the company's bottom line. I've said repeatedly at the moment we got inflation in under control. Companies like Coca-Cola, we get a monster earnings boost, making them even more attractive. So now that tons of commodity prices have more or less crashed, especially aluminum— corn and sugar, I'm thinking the next few quarters could be incredibly positive for the soda business. You take away the inflation problem, and we're back in your typical Fed-mandated slowdown where stocks like Coke tend to roar higher. Let me put it like this. Even in the face of those awful inflationary headwinds, Coca-Cola was already doing really well. When the company reported its first quarter results in late April, the numbers were magnificent. We're talking 18% organic revenue growth. Wall Street was only looking for 9%. They doubled what people were looking for substantially higher than expected revenue, fueled by both stronger pricing and stronger values. Even better, Coca-Cola's operating margin jumped 40 basis points year over year, much higher than anyone was looking for. These are really good numbers, okay? And that was because pricing was so strong. In other words, people just can't get enough of this stuff. In the end, that translated into a 6 cent earnings beat off of a 58 cent basis with 16% year over year earnings growth, even in the face of a much stronger dollar, which is bad news for a big international company like this one. Of course, the company had to bend over backwards to fight against inflation. Many of their inputs had soared in price, especially aluminum and plastic for packaging. But management said the can makers were finally adding new capacity after holding back for a long time. That'll bring prices down. More important, Coca-Cola got in touch with their customers worldwide and found ways to do things more efficiently. I mean, one of the things that I I really uh, I love about Coca-Cola is it's kind of like, a United Nations, and they all get together, they figure out what the right thing to do is, and they all be able to figure out together in a very loose confederation how to do it best in each country. Funny thing, even though the stock rallied a, a bit right after it reported its first quarter, the whole market almost immediately started rolling over as we got into May. That week just brought down the stock of Coke, too. At this point, the stock is down nearly 5% since it reported that great quarter. And while that's much more than the more than 9% decline in the S P 500 over the same period, it's obviously not good. The weird thing is that I think this story's only gotten better in the last two and a half months. Actually, no, I don't think. I know it's gotten better, which makes me so confident. What makes me so confident that this is going to get take out its high? Well, first, again, this is a textbook recession-proof name with great management that's done a terrific job in handling a high inflation environment. Remember, a lot of people, not me, but a lot of people think we're going to a serious recession. It's exactly the kind of company that we like here, one that makes real stuff returns a profit, returns those profits to shareholders via dividends and a buyback, and and also has a reasonable valuation versus its historic pricing. When I say Coke is recession-proof, what I mean is that people keep drinking soda, even if the economy goes into a tailspin. At the same time, the 2.8% dividend yield looks more attractive now that bond yields have come down from the recent highs. And Coke trades at 25 times this year's earnings estimates, right in line with the average multiple over the last three years. Uh, I I think 25 times earnings is plenty reasonable, given that this company just delivered 18% organic growth and is one of the best run companies in the world. Second, Coca-Cola's got a reopening kicker. These guys have a food service business serving restaurants, and now that we're no longer letting COVID control our behavior, that business is making a huge comeback. The food service business is up against some very easy comparisons right now, making this an excellent time to own the stock of Coca-Cola. Third, booze. This company's finally getting into the alcohol business via partnerships with real liquor companies, good ones. Last year, Coca-Cola launched Topo Chico, which is my favorite. That's a hard seltzer. uh, Topo Chico hard seltzer with Molson Coors. Uh, Topo Chico seltzer is fantastic, fizzy water. But when they put it together with Molson Coors, it's amazing. It's become very competitive. Topo Chico did incredibly well in the first year, becoming the number three brand in the category. Even though it was only available in a third of the country, unlike the number one and two brands, which are everywhere. I am a big fan of the pineapple flavor. Oh, and Coke just launched a simply spiked hard lemonade product a few weeks ago along the same lines, hearing good things. But on top of that, they announced a partnership with Constellation Brands back in January to sell fresca cocktails. This thing is everywhere. Fresca, the blizzard flavor. I feel like I'm a teenager again. If you told me Fresco would be the fastest growing soda, Terry, Mark, and Coke, US business a couple years ago, I would have laughed in your face. But that's exactly what it is. And apparently, the grapefruit flavor is already a very popular mixer. Um, and not apparently, I know it is because it's what I use. Okay, right, anyway. Then there's the Jack and Coke partnership. Just last month, Coca Cola teamed up with Brown Foreman to create a canned Jack Daniels and Coke cocktail, including Jack and Coke Zero and Jack and Diet Coke. I've had them. Wow! It's launching in Mexico later this year for expanding the rest of the world. This one seems like an obvious slam dunk to me. Now, just to be clear, uh, Lisa goes for the Coke Zero. I I go for the Diet Coke. Uh, Now, Cocoa is no longer being crushed by inflation. This has been their biggest challenge, but now prices are. Finally, going in the right direction. Do you know that corn is down 27% from its April highs? That's incredible. Do you know, including a 23% decline over the last, over the past three weeks, a lot of corn syrup in this stuff. Sugar's down 10% from its April highs. These are hugely important inputs. Aluminum is down 41% from its peak in March. So the packaging problem is solved. Freight's been a problem, but trucking prices are now down 18% year to date. And as we saw from today's uptick in jobless claims, I wouldn't be surprised if the labor inflation issue gets solved in the not-too-distant future. I told you I'm bullish about this stuff. The only the area where Coca-Cola is worse off is the insanely strong dollar, up 9% since the first quarter, although that, of course, is very uh, deflationary, too. It means that foreign earnings translate into fewer greenbacks. Not good, but currency fluctuations are much easier for Wall Street to ignore than rampant raw cost inflation. The bottom line, so far in a very bad year for the stock market, Coca-Cola has been one of the really consistent winners out there. These guys were already putting up great numbers when inflation was insane in the first quarter. Now that so many of their key costs have come down dramatically from their highs, and the whole thing's run by the brilliant, irreverent, risk-taking James Quincy, I think Coke's results will only just get better. Now, we're going to go to Joseph in Texas. Joseph. Hello, Jim. Joseph. I uh, followed your story, uh, your show, for many years. It's a pleasure to be on with you. Oh, thank um, you. Thank you very much. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. So, my question is about Oatly. Um, I'm a big fan of the company.
2: been buying since uh, February, just kind of nibbling here and there. Okay.
3: That's the potential. he has got the international exposure for me. Just wondering if I should start buying. Okay, yet. well, look, I'm not recommending stocks that are losing money. That said, I will tell you, that stock has finally played enough, paid enough time in purgatory that I think it actually may be bottoming. And it, wouldn't, it would make a lot of sense for someone else in the business of, of soft drinks or in the drink a business of fruit drinks to buy Oatly to finish their stable. Look, in a very bad year for the stock market, Coca-Cola's been one of the few consistent winners out there. I think Coke's results will only get better as the year goes on. We got a lot of head of man bunnies, inclusive with Levi's, fresh off of earnings. Well, Levi's is able to tell us about the state of the consumer, recession fears, and also just some terrific, terrific results. I'm going to talk to the CEO. Then GameStop popped today on the news that the company's doing a 4-for-1 stock split. But is this the, really the catalyst that makes the stock worth buying? I'm going to give you my take, and then you can go on Reddit, and Twitter and say really loving things about me. And all your calls rapid fire tonight's edition of The Lightning Round. So stay with Kramer. I keep telling you, in many cases, this market has just gotten way too negative. That's been my theme now for a full week. Look at what just happened with Levi Strauss and Company, the king of denim. We know the apparel space has been absolutely hated, and the maker of Levi's has seen its stock plunge from $30 last July to 16 and change today? A plus in a buffer? to be glow? After the close, up. Levi Strauss reported an excellent set of numbers. We're talking about a 6-cent earnings beat off 23-cent basis. Higher than expected sales, up 20% year-over-year on a constant courtesy basis, which is the only way to look at it. Everybody's been worried about costs, but their margins were surprisingly resilient in a tough environment. While the company didn't raise its full-year forecast, merely reiterating the previous one, I can't blame them for being cautious. Overall, though, let's just call it much better than expected. Don't take it from me. Let's check in with Chip Berg, the president and CEO of Levi Strauss. Get a better read on the quarter. Mr. Berg, welcome back to Mad Money.
6: It's great to be back here with you again. And I'm looking forward to seeing you in person in your brand new studio, maybe next quarter.
3: Oh, I sure hope so. And thank you so much for mentioning that. Chip, these are outstanding numbers. And I'm trying to figure out whether things got people just got too gloomy because you've been executing at a very high level. And the Juneano state was incredible or things have accelerated. And we should just be a little more positive about the consumer worldwide or, or is it something in between.
6: Well, you know, the Levi's brand, I, I've said before here at our Investor Day a little bit more than a month ago, We've it, it's never been stronger. And the strength of the brand clearly uh, showed this last quarter. You know, the brand was up 20 percent. As you said, we delivered really strong revenue results on a reported basis up 15, 20 percent on a constant currency basis. Really strong margins. Our gross margins were 58.2 percent. Which was equaled a year ago, and in light of all of the cost pressures and everything else, uh, it's testimony to the actions that we've taken. Um, you know, the revenue growth was a combination of both really strong unit growth as well as average unit retails being up eight uh, percent, reflecting the pricing that we've taken. So, the business has momentum. Um, we, as you said, we reaffirmed guidance mm-hmm. for the full year, um, coming off of the beat this quarter, and it's just to have an element of conservatism in, this, in there as we look ahead. But um, we've got a ton of confidence in the business based on the momentum that we carried through this quarter. Well,
3: I, I think you should. Now, Chip, I was going to say at one point when I went to, uh, right over the analyst, screen, I said, geez, they're taking a, a, a page out of the Nike playbook. But when I saw your direct-to-consumer numbers, I'm thinking they're taking a page out of your playbook. Those were extraordinary, Chip. You've really gotten aggressive in that since, since you came public.
6: Well, it it, it goes all the way back uh, almost, you know, almost 11 years since I joined the company. Direct-to-consumer has been a focal point of our strategy for the last 10 years. It was 20% of the company's business when I joined. Uh, It's now 37%. This last quarter was 37% of revenues, and we've set a very ambitious target of direct-to-consumer being 55% of our business five years from now. And it's strategic for a couple of reasons. Number one, we can control how the brand shows up, what the consumer experience is in our own stores and on our own e-commerce sites. Number two, we get all of the data on that consumer experience as well. And that over time is gonna become really, really important. And then, you know, most importantly, um, we bring the brand to life in our own retail experience. And and that is, uh, you know, that's what's been driving our results over the last couple of years. It is gross margin accretive. It is a more structurally attractive business for us. And we're committed to it. We're continuing to invest in building new doors. We'll build about 100 new doors a year, every year for the next five years. And we'll have about 1,500 own and operated stores in the next couple of years. Well,
3: I think those are great. And one of the things I'm excited about that's in them uh, is is Beyond Yoga. I'm trying to figure out, you know, at the analyst day, the person who's running Beyond Yoga is excellent, says it could be a billion-dollar brand one day. I, I hate to say that. I actually think it could be bigger than that. Now, maybe that's because I, I, my eyes are too big from what Lulu's done. But it is. A, it's just a great concept.
6: Yeah, we're really pleased with this acquisition, Jim. It's still really early days, but we just opened up our first retail experience it's a pop-up store at the grove in los angeles it opened on uh, june 25th Uh, it's off to a really good start Um, when consumers experience this brand the product is really differentiated it's super soft we talk about its buttery softness um, and we've now got a men's line which we've just recently introduced Um, we we bought this brand it's it'll be over 100 million dollars this year Um, but we didn't buy it because we thought it was going to be a $100 million brand. We really do believe it could be a billion dollars in the not-too-distant future. And I agree with you. Once we cross a billion, then it's on to $2 billion. And uh, we think the opportunity here is really significant, and it's going to become an ever-increasingly important part of our portfolio as we continue to diversify this business.
3: Now, I was uh, surprised at the reinvention of Dockers. Now, Dockers is a kind of a— Older brand, Chip, and you—you you and I both know it. Kind of, it kind of got footballed The different department stores, man. I won. It's coming back, isn't it?
6: It is. Um, in fact, Dockers was accreted this quarter. It's been accreted for the first half of the year. It was up twenty-seven percent this quarter. Um, I'm really pleased with the performance of this business. We've we've taken a very different approach to running it. We carved it out very separately. Um, In the past, we have run the Dockers business with parts of people who spent most of their time on Levi's and it just wasn't working. And so now we have a fully dedicated team. It sounds really simple, like why didn't we do this a long time ago? But we've got a fully dedicated team. That means everybody who works on Dockers is only working on Dockers. They have true skin in the game on this. We're almost running it as if the company is private equity and it's one of our assets. And um, the results speak for themselves. The business has really turned around. We're attracting a younger consumer. Our e-commerce business is on fire. Uh, And it's starting to begin to take the shape more of a Levi's business in terms of more direct-to-consumer, more international business. Both of those are structurally more attractive than the the traditional wholesale business, which is where it had been stuck
3: for a real long
6: time. So we're pleased and very, very optimistic about its future.
3: Well, OK, so you know that uh, I am a very big fan of Harmit Singh. I had dinner with him very recently. Now, he talked about the priorities. Now, I'm a growth guy, too. And he talked about growth and he talked about opening stores. But, you know, you got that $2, two billion plus slug of debt. I think the stock goes to 30 if you buy back $200 million of it. And I just you mentioned the prior thinking like private equity. I mean, Chip, your stock's ridiculously cheap. You and I both know that. I think that you raise the dividend. And that's one way to do it. But, you know, people just think the debt's too big. You and I know it isn't. But maybe it would just cosmetic. But if you bought some back, you had the capital to do so. Maybe you should do it.
6: Yeah. Well, our leverage ratio is at decades low right now at one point one percent. We've got, you know, almost two billion dollars of liquidity as well. And uh, and so. Uh, the debt is not the issue. Uh, The board did approve before the investor day a $750 million share buyback. We've been pretty aggressive with that. This past quarter, uh, we returned $80 million in capital to shareholders uh, through both dividends and share buybacks. And we're going to continue to be aggressive buying back our shares. I mean, I agree with you. I look at our stock price. When we went public, it was priced at 17 and we opened you will remember at 22 <laughs> north You're of 22 a dollars a share now it's ridiculous and, uh, you know we've been unfortunately punished and pummeled with the rest of the industry but i are the the business there's no question we are a far stronger far better company today than we were when we went public in in march of 2019 and um, the valuation is a real opportunity for smart investors. and we're real happy with our investor base. We've right. got a lot of long investors in the stock. And uh, you know we've now been very, very concrete about what our return of capital is going to be, which is something that we didn't do at the time of the IPO. And hopefully that's going to continue to attract um, investors who are really interested in the long-term Excellent. ride. Excellent. and the long-term potential of this company. Well,
3: Chip, you know, I think it's just ridiculously cheap. And I, I know that people are too gloomy, and you just delivered a terrific quarter again. I want to thank you, and I hope I do see you in person soon. Chip Berg is the president and CEO of Levi Strauss. Congratulations on a great quarter, sir. It's great to
6: see you. Thank you very much. Good Perfect. talking with you, Jen.
3: man money back after the break. Coming up next. Let's make money together. What do we got?
1: Kramer is bringing the thunder
3: and answering your burning
1: questions in today's edition of The Lightning Round.
3: It is time to for the Lightning Round planes, And then the Lightning Round's over. Are you ready? Ski day time for the Lightning Round Conference. It's to start with Eric in California. Eric! Hey, booyah, Jimbo from San Francisco. Oh man, good to have you. I'll be out there soon again. What's going on? Yeah, good to have you at One Market. Hey, uh, I own a bunch of uh, CHGG. I don't know what to I make 11. of Chegg. The CEO bought a ton of stock in the 20s. I thought it was uh, going to bottom there, then it went down again. But at 18, I don't know. To me, it seems like the bulls are going to win on this side. Let's go to Bob in Massachusetts. Bob. Hey Jim, thanks for all you do. what uh, at the natural gas space. I know you like Devin, but I'm looking for something a little cheaper.
2: How about Comstock Resources?
3: Comstock Resources, very cheap stock. I'm glad you mentioned Devin. You know that uh, we have big, big positions in the oils for uh, for my Chapel trust, and there's been a lot of nice things being said about the Chapel trust, and I hope people watch uh, Monday when we're going to do a big club meeting. Let's go to Horace in Maryland. Horace.
6: Hey, Jim. I'm a first-time caller from Maryland, and I want to thank you for all of your uh, advice over the years. Thank
3: you. Um, Thank you.
6: Like many others, I'm struggling in this bear market, Uh, and I'd like your opinion on the stock I purchased at a much higher than current uh, level. And I wonder if I should sell, hold, or buy more And that stock is Moderna. Similar okay, I
3: think Stefan Benzel is, is really the, the, the very real deal. I think that stock has now come down enough. I, I would want to own Moderna. I do like Pfizer more than Moderna because Pfizer bought BioHaven, and it was a really, really smart acquisition. Let's go to Robert in Colorado, please. Robert.
1: Hi, Jim. Um, I'm calling about
6: one uh, oak ticker symbol OKE. I wonder if I should just keep it for the long haul or take my profits. Oh,
3: in, no, thing. keep it. I mean, you know, look, I, I know uh, I'm, I'm good friends. Well, it's been a long time now with Walter Hulse, who uh, is a very important guy there. And Walt is one of the best people I've ever seen when it comes to oil and gas. I think that's a fantastic stock with a great yield. I think you should own it. Oke, a great stock. Tom in Rhode Island. Tom. Booyah, Jimmy Chill. Yo, man, Chills in the house saying how to Um, help some stocks. People are controversial. What's up? Uh, We're seeing a decline in the auto industry. What's your uh, thoughts on Gentex going forward? You know, they do a lot of really good stuff inside a car. I saw the Tenetco deal. I'm going to say buy Gentex. I'm starting to warm up to autos. Now, no one's warming up to autos except for me, and I always like to be the only guy. Hey, let's go to Rajiv in New York. Rajiv.
6: Hi, Jim. Great show. I
3: um,
6: wanted to ask you about applied materials,
3: please. Uh, you know both- what? I think AMAT is at 12 times earnings, and it's too good a company. And, you know, I'm going to give you two for I I think Lamb Research is really terrific out here, too. And that, ladies and is the conclusion of the Lightning Round.
1: The Lightning Round is sponsored by TD Ameritrade. Coming up, Kramer sees a big opportunity for this ultimate cult stock. Does GameStop's future lay in the metaverse? Stick around.
6: Kramer, you are super. You are awesome.
5: I'm a first-time investor. Thank you for
6: inspiring
5: me to get in the game. Your show is the best. I am so glad you on TV. I
0: want you to know that you have transformed me. Thank you, Kramer.
3: We all love stock splits, don't we? Even though we know that they don't actually change anything at all, they create no value. But splits often signify that a company's doing incredibly well, maybe even better than expected. So when GameStop announced a 4-for-1 split last night, it got me wondering if there could be something good going on here that I hadn't heard about. Uh, But when I checked the press release, lo and behold, all it said was that the additional shares would be distributed after the close July 21st. No matter the stock took off, of course, jumping 15 percent because it's controlled, meaning that a small set of groupies control the action. and They can take it up aggressively. Whenever they really seem to have the slightest positive catalyst, they just go do it. Now, I don't know if the groupies and memesters will ever come to grips with the actual problems here, GameStop's fundamentals, which are, for lack of a better term, terrible. The analysts expect GameStop to lose more than 6 bucks per share this year, although only about $4 per share are going to lose next year. Uh, Better still, but um, I don't know, maybe, maybe better than a sharp stick in the eye. The company's only been able to take these losses by selling new stock to its credulous shareholder base. Only individuals who are deeply in love with the concept could own the stock through these sustained losses. But what really drives me nuts is that somehow, even though the entire gaming cohort has been crushed because people feel safe to go outside again, these guys still can't get enough money losing dinosaur like GameStop. Here's what we know about gaming. First, the COVID era of enthusiasm for video games has clearly peaked which means less demand all around. Second, according to Corey Barry, the fabulous CEO of Best Buy, don't expect any new hardware launches of Note this year or next, meaning the latest console cycle could be soon running its course. Plus, the hard good side could become problematic now that we've returned to normalcy post-pandemic. So there's a lot less reason to invest in a fancy gaming setup. Third, even the best operators, like Take Two Interactive, are struggling. GameStop is far from that. It, uh, frankly, it's a superfluous operator. Now, the company's shedding underperforming stock uh, shares. That's good. That's a very hands-on management team, ostensibly led by mega shareholder Ryan Cohen. Gotta hope he's inventing new things because I'm not sure about his investing acumen of late. He recently plowed a bunch of money into Bed Bath & Beyond around $15, according to CNBC.com. It's still 5 bucks, even after a huge bounce today driven by insider buying. GameStop shareholders are clearly betting that this time he's laser-focused on saving GameStop, not Bed Bath & Beyond, with brand-new ideas, although I wish he could save both of them. Fortunately, because I care passionately about GameStop, Cohen, and his rabid Reddit followers who cheer me on nonstop every day on Twitter. Well, I come bearing just that new idea that could save this chain. Even if it doesn't work, it's not like this company has a lot to lose. Right now, GameStop sells all of the meta platforms, virtual reality products, but it doesn't emphasize them, even though VR is one of the few areas where people are likely to buy something in person. Hey, you want to try on the headset before you pay up? We know Meta, formerly Facebook, is betting big on the Metaverse. They think it's the future. So I think GameStop should just go all in, all in, and become basically the brick-and-mortar arm of Meta platforms. I'd even go to Mark Zuckerberg and beg for permission to be known as the Meta Store. There will be many iterations of Meta's Quest VR platform. We've already had a few. And I can't think of a better place to swap them out because you want to get a new one and they can do that kind of thing than GameStop. Hey, you know what? GameStop can even hire reps for Meta. You know what? They may even be able to make Meta pay for the reps. I know virtual reality hasn't really caught on yet with the consumer, but selling physical video games is a business with no future. People just download them over the Internet. That's the point. So if GameStop wants a future, they need to make a big bet on something new. And I think the metaverse is their best chance to stay in business. Maybe it doesn't work, but unlike their current business model, there's a possibility of success. I like to say there's always more market somewhere. I promise I fight just for you right here on mid Money. I'm Jim Kramer. See you next time. The news with Shepherd Smith starts
5: now
2: This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses. No one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery.